Good morning. Would you please open your Bibles with me to Galatians chapter 4. As we continue through the book of Galatians, which we have entitled, No Other Gospel. We all say amen to that. I think Matt mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, that actually you could say that the book of Galatians is many Romans, in a sense. Uh, He wrote this uh, letter before he wrote the letter to the Romans. Um, And actually in the book of Romans, he just expounded on many of the truths that he laid out in the, uh, the letter to the Galatians that we are studying right now. Uh, it's an important letter in many ways, and the chapter today that we're looking at, chapter 4, I think is probably the, the key chapter uh, in the book. It is the chapter that gets to the heart of the, uh, the concern, I guess you could say, of the issue that's in Paul's heart regarding where the Galatians are and what they've been exposed to and uh, the result that it has had in their lives and in the church. So I want to begin reading in uh, chapter 4, and actually I'm going to back up one verse, and I don't know if that will be on the overhead, but I'll read verse 29 of chapter 3. As I launch into chapter 4, I'm going to read the first 11 verses of chapter 4 from the ESV version. 3.29 says, And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? whose slaves you want to be once more. You observe days, days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid, I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Father, we thank you today that the Spirit of God does not labor in us in vain, but that everything that you do by your Spirit, Lord, in fact, is accomplishing eternal purposes and ends. We thank you the word of God is living and active today, that it is not just letters on a page, but that it is God-breathed. And we thank you that because it is God-breathed today, it has the power to change our lives. So Lord, move today beyond our 
memory, beyond our present understanding, beyond what we think we already know of this. And by your Spirit, speak to us, Father, we pray that Jesus Christ would be exalted and glorified in our lives and in this church. In his name we ask these things. Amen. Remember that there were no chapters in Paul's letters to the Galatians. So chapter 4 actually begins with the clarifying words. What I mean, and of course we know that he's referring back to the verse, previous verse 29 of chapter 3. That verse actually is is a very powerful and a very important verse in chapter 3. And he says it begins with these words, and if you are Christ's, and he says, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. And there are three very important truths or words, you could say, in this verse. The words offspring, the words heirs, and the word promise. We are Abraham's offspring, born of the same spirit. Born of the same faith as his. And we are heirs of something very valuable that we're going to be looking at today in the verses that we're looking at. And because we are heirs, that infers that we have an inheritance. And that inheritance, Paul says, is ours because of a promise, a promise that was made. So we are the offspring of Abraham. We are heirs of a very valuable, valuable inheritance. And we have that inheritance because of a promise that was made. The promise was made in Genesis chapter 15, verses 5 and 6. Let's look at it. And it says this. And he took him outside, God taking Abraham outside his tent. And he said, now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you are able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. And then he believed in the Lord, the New American Standard says. And he credited it to him as righteousness. He believed in the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. For we who have believed in this room today, the same righteousness that was credited to Abraham has been credited to you and I. The same righteousness. Because we too have believed the Lord and believed in the Lord. We are the descendants of Abraham that God was speaking of that day. We are the children of promise. Just as God had said there would be descendants as he promised Abraham. More than he could count. More than he could count as the stars were innumerable. So would his descendants be. And we are heirs of a great inheritance. And that is the focus of Paul in the text today that we're looking at. The inheritance of what it is and then the implications as we understand this inheritance. And I want to say to you, please, today, allow this to settle into your hearts. Because this is the issue at hand with Paul today. That the Galatians had somehow forgotten the greatness of the inheritance that was theirs. 
and they had wandered from it. And they were missing the blessing and the grace that was theirs in this great inheritance. We'll see in a moment. What is this inheritance? What is it exactly? Can we figure this out? Well, we know that we are now children of God, as the text that we read this morning says, children of God adopted into the family of God, and therefore we are benefactors of what Peter was so caught up with in his second letter that he wrote. Listen to his words in chapter 1 of his second epistle. He writes this. He says, For his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Listen, through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Through these, he has granted to us, here it is, precious and magnificent promises. So that by them, here's the point, you may become partakers of the divine nature. Having escaped the corruption that is in the world on the count of of lust. What a great inheritance we have been given. More valuable than any earthly wealth or any earthly possessions. We have been given new birth through regeneration. We are now being conformed into the image of God, becoming like Him. Amazing. Like the one who redeemed us. And we are free from death and free from the power of the death that sin brings in this corrupted world. Peter said, very great and magnificent promises we've been given. This is the inheritance, and it is even greater than that we'll see in the scriptures in a few moments. But this is the inheritance we've been given as the people of God. It's incredibly Wonderful. We are heirs. We are heirs of this great inheritance. And it was promised to Abraham. And we are now the children that were promised to Abraham. And I just, I'm I'm amazed and I think about how one day in heaven we always ask, I don't know, we ask this question, do you think so-and-so will be there? I hope so-and-so is there. Of course, we don't know the answer to that. Only God knows. But we know for one thing, that there will be so many that it would be an innumerable amount, unable to be counted. So God has been at work on the earth from the beginning. And those who have believed in him, to them it has been credited as their righteousness of God in Christ. So we can understand now why God is, excuse me, why Paul is so passionate in this letter to the Galatians, and why he is at the same time frustrated. He's frustrated with them. Because they had either forgotten, or they had never really understood what the inheritance they had been given really was. And I I feel like that's true of us today here as well. Some of us have forgotten. We aren't dialed in or aware of really, we don't think about our Christian experience in this way, or if we have understood it, we, 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 or maybe we have never even understood it, excuse me, we have forgotten it or we've actually not ever understood it. It's never gripped, really gripped our hearts. It's never moved us. 
to greater love for the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of this, they were returning to their old way of life, which was a way of, of really of death. And what Paul will equate to slavery because of the fact that they had subjected themselves to the Judaizers who had brought in something that needed to be added, as Matt said last week, to the gospel to somehow enable them to be saved. Paul said they had in effect become slaves again when in fact they were really sons. And that's the, the, the title of my teaching this morning, Servants or Sons. And we'll look at that more in depth in a moment as well. In this chapter 4, Paul uses three examples to convince the Galatians of their foolishness and the fact that they do not need to go back under the law in order to be stay, saved or to stay saved. In verses 1 through 11 that we're going to look at this morning, he uses the example comparing a son to a servant. And then the second example is found in verses 12 through 20 when he uses his own life to make the same point. And then the last is verses 21 through 31, and it's an allegory that he uses of Hagar and Ishmael contrasted with Sarah and Isaac. With each of these, Paul is making the same point. He is saying this, to neglect the grace of God and to return to their formal, futile way of living and thinking is to come back under enslavement or slavery. It was a life that was a life of slavery to their sinful nature. So we're going to look at verses 1 through 11 in this first example. In the text today, there are two really important uh, lessons, I think, to be learned. The first is simply the theology of it. It's incredibly beautiful and important and powerful theology in these first 11 verses. The second lesson is very practical that we'll look at today as well, because it comes down to this. How do we, as individuals, relate to God? How do you relate to God? How do I relate to God? Two important lessons. The theology is, is interesting. He states it very briefly in the beginning, and he uses a very simple illustration of life, of truth. He says this, when a child is born into a household, and now, and of course, this is in a wealthy house in his day, and it would be true in our day as well, if he is too young to be trusted with the family's inheritance, he is put under guardians or tutors until the time he's old enough to take possession of the inheritance. And so he might be, in fact, the heir to incredible wealth, an incredible estate, but when he is a young child, he's under a guardian or under a tutor with laws that will govern his life. And it will not be until he is old enough to be trusted with that estate that then it will become, in fact, his to possess. He has to abide as a young child by the laws that are imposed on him. And in that capacity, Paul's saying, he's much like a servant. He's just like a servant in the home. He's not, in fact, like the one who is the heir of all of it. He's just like any other servant in the house with responsibilities 
and obligations and laws that are imposed upon him as a young boy or a young girl, heir to the estate. He cannot yet rule, but in fact has some that are ruling over him. His his father's estate belongs to him by title, but not yet by actual possession. This is what Paul is saying. However, at some point, when he is grown and able to take possession, able to inherit the family assets and to manage them, suddenly he is no longer under anyone. In fact, he is now over them. And he would not again ever subject himself to what he had been subjected to as a young boy. This is simply the truth that Paul is using, the example to speak of what he wants them to understand. And point of this analogy for Paul is that he's saying that the law plays a similar role in the story of salvation. He said in verse 3, in the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now, this term, elementary principles of the world, is really difficult. In fact, it's hotly debated by um, theologians and by uh, commentators of what, in fact, does it mean? It can mean a couple of things, and that's why it's hard to know what he's referring to. It can mean something like the essential components of something like the ABCs of the world. In other words, the law could have been like, like the ABCs. The basics, the the very basic truths that were needed to to live by. Or it could be referring for the Galatians to their, their former pagan way of living. The elemental principles, the elemental spirits that they once worshipped. Water, wind, fire, the earth that they worshipped as pagans. It could be referring to that which we know were demonic in their deception and their need and their desire to create worship in the heart of man. So both of those could apply here. It could be the simple ABCs of the law, or it could be the demonic deception that they were under. In verses 9 and 10, Paul uses the term again, and in that place, it's, that point, it, it's clear that he's referring to their pagan worship. So it could be that is what he's talking about. But regardless, what Paul is saying is that they're in danger of returning to something that has no life, listen, and no freedom in it. And they need to be careful. And I would say that that's true for us as well. That we need to be careful. That we don't fall into religion that has no life in it and no freedom in it. And that we would wander away from the grace of God that's in Christ back to duty and obligation as though we were yet under something when in fact we are only now living in grace. Verses 4 through 7 of this chapter are key to the chapter that I believe is the key chapter. So these verses 4 through 7 are probably the most important verses in the book of Galatians in my mind. And these are such incredibly beautiful. The way that he wrote them is beautiful. The theology is beautiful and deep. Let's, I want you to read that with me if you would. We can read it out of the ESV. 
Galatians chapter 4. Let's read verses 4 through 7 together out loud. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Whoa. The Trinity is encapsulated in these verses. The work of the triune God, the Father, sending the Son and now sending the Spirit to indwell the hearts of those that put their faith in Christ. Let's break this down quickly and look at these verses part by part. For when the fullness of time had come, what does this speak of? God's perfect, sovereign plan. At just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. John Calvin said it this way. He said, when the time that was ordained by the providence of God was seasonable and fit. Jesus came when the time that was ordained by the providence of God was seasonable and fit. It was exactly the right time in human history that Jesus Christ came. Exactly the right time. Everything was perfect in the world at that time for the gospel to impact it. The Greeks had provided a common language that had not existed up to that point. The Romans had built roads throughout all of the known world that had never existed at that point so that they could take the gospel, which they did. It was exactly the right time. When the fullness of time had come, I think sometimes we fail to remember that we're living in the perfect plan of God. Oh, if only this could happen. If only that would happen. If only I could do this. If only I could do that. If only I could move here. If only I could move there. If only God would do this. If only... It's the perfect plan of God that's being worked out. But you go, what about, isn't the devil at work? Yes, under the sovereignty of God. He too is only able to do what God allows him to do. So that this plan might come to pass. When the fullness of time had come, it says God sent forth his son, Paul wrote. God sent forth his son. The word sent means to have been sent on a mission. To have been dispatched to accomplish something is the thought there. And this very clearly declares the deity of the Son of God. The fact that he was sent means that he existed before he was born in Bethlehem. To be sent, he had to already have been somewhere. Are you with me? This is a verse that Jehovah's Witnesses miss. The eternal God, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Word of God, was sent by the Father. He sent forth His Son. The Son is eternal. He is fully equal to the Father. He has existed eternally as the Son of God. And yet He went willingly as He was sent 
to come to the earth and to bear the sins of men. But not only was he sent, Paul writes, but he was born of a woman. This speaks of his humanity. The glory and the mystery of the incarnation. The word sent, we know, implies eternal deity. The word born declares his true humanity. He was sent and he was born. The man who came to save us is the God-man. He is one person with two natures, divine and human. The Athanasian Creed was written to try to clarify confusion that had come about to understand this mystery of the Incarnation. I took a part of it. I want you to read it. I'll put it on the screen for you. It says this. Now this is the true faith, that we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ God's Son is both God and human equally. He is God from the essence of the Father, begotten before time, and He is human from the essence of His mother, born in time. Completely God, completely human, with a rational soul and human flesh. Equal to the Father as regards divinity, less than the Father as regards Humanity. Although he is God and human, yet Christ is not two, but one. He is one, however, not by his divinity being turned into flesh, but by God taking on humanity to himself. He is one, certainly not by the blending of his essence, but by the unity of his person. For just as one human is both rational soul and flesh, so too the one Christ is both God and human. Whoa. Some brilliant guys wrote this, and it took them many, 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 many days and weeks and months to formulate these words, to even argue about them, to debate them as to what in fact was true. Because they knew that it was so important to understand these truths and not to confuse them, because you would end up in error and in heresy And you would miss the point of this God-man, truly God, truly man, fully God, fully man, never the mixing of the two natures. While on the earth, both equally true, never mixing them. And that might answer a lot of the questions you have as you read the Gospels. How does he know things that only God could know? He is the nature of God. What is the writer to the Hebrews means that in, he had to be tempted in all ways like us. He was a man fully, yet without sin. So Paul touches on this amazing truth in these few verses. When the fullness of time God sent forth his son, born of a woman, and then he writes, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. The law was the tutor for the Jews to lead them to Christ. He's already told us that. Christ himself was born under the law, as Matt talked about last week, and he perfectly obeyed the law in order that he might redeem those who could not keep the law. 
Because he fulfilled the law with his obedience, he was able to redeem those who had failed in their obedience and were separated by God because of their sinful disobedience. Because he fulfilled the law in his obedience, he was able to redeem those who had failed in their disobedience. A man, just like you and I. And amazingly, and this is another point in Paul's writings in another place, he received in his body the penalty for our law-breaking. And we remember that every Sunday as we take communion. He received in his body my and your penalty for our law-breaking. In Paul's time to redeem a slave, you had to pay for his freedom. The Lord Jesus Christ paid for our freedom, our redemption with his life. That's what the word redeem means. It's to pay a ransom. He paid the ransom for you and for me, not with earthly possession, but with his very life. But are born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And now we're getting to the heir, to the inheritance. Here is the great inheritance Paul was alluding to earlier. We are now children of this great God and our Father because we are children. And because we are children, He has sent His Spirit into our hearts. Now the Holy Spirit gives us the assurance that we are now part of the family of God according to the promise that was given to Abraham. That's one of the reasons the Spirit was sent. The word sent that is used to speak of God sending the Spirit into our hearts is the same word as the word sent when he says he sent forth his Son. He was sent on a mission. The Spirit was sent on a mission to our, to our hearts to confirm to us that we are children of God descendants of Abraham and have the same righteousness because we have the same faith. Count the stars, the Lord said to Abraham, if you can, so shall your descendants be. That's us. And now we have this great love and affection for God, or we should. And so we cry out, Abba, Father. Because we are children of God, not slaves, not servants, but children of God. Born into this family, one of the many, many, many myriad of those that are in the family of God because we have the same faith as Abraham, because we have believed in the Lord. And so then Paul says, so now you are no longer a slave but a son or a daughter. And if so, then you are an heir through God. You are heirs of God. And this is the heart of the plea that Paul has with the Galatians. They are sons. They are free. They are heirs of God with this great inheritance. Don't forsake it. He is pleading with them in any way. Listen to how Paul says this very same thing in, in Romans chapter 8. 
verses 14 through 17. He says it this way, For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons and daughters of God. Now, it's interesting he uses the term being led by the Spirit of God. So in other words, when we are living under the law, we are not living and being led by the Spirit of God. When you live under the law, an obligation and duty, and wrote dead religion, you are not being led by the Spirit. You are being led by something else. So he uses that phrase in the beginning of this text in Romans 8. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons and daughters of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery, he says again, leading to fear. Again, interesting. So now he tells us that the slavery in Romans, that he didn't say in Galatians, the slavery leads to fear. Fear of what? Fear of God. Fear of God, fear of rejection, fear of, of, uh, of disapproval from God, fear of consequence. How many of you have a fear of consequence with God because of your behavior? Fear of the unknown, fears in life possibly even, because you're not secure in the love of God. Are you hearing me? Slavery leads to fear, Paul says. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons and daughters by which we cry out. He says it again as he did in Galatians 4. Abba, Father, great affection, great love for God. And if we are children, he says it again, heirs also. Heirs of God, and now he adds this, that he didn't have in Galatians, fellow heirs with Christ. Kath and I were listening to a, a tremendous teacher yesterday at a conference we went to here in Sacramento. <clears throat> and he was talking about this one verse at one point in one of his lectures. And he said, I can take this text in Romans 8, 17, and I can exegete it. I could tell you what the Greek is. I could tell you the verb tenses and so on. But I can't tell you exactly what it means when he says that we are fellow heirs with Christ. He goes, I can't fully understand that. It's too great for me. Not only are we heirs, Paul says. Other translations say joint heirs. With Christ. How is that possible? How could we be an heir with Christ? An heir of what? I don't know either, obviously. But I read again 1 Corinthians 15 this morning and the beautiful writing of Paul about the resurrection and how it takes that which is earthly needing to be sown so that which is heavenly can be raised. Somehow it must have to do with what Christ himself has already accomplished through his life, death, burial, and resurrection that becomes ours. That in his humanity, he began anew with mankind. That he's the firstborn of many brothers. And therefore we are joint heirs with him of this new life. It's incredible truths. This is our inheritance. 
So Paul is so jealous for the Galatians. And I'm, I'm always amazed at how <clears throat> this is probably a young church in many ways. They couldn't be, they're not as mature as you and I. They hadn't been believers as long as you and I have. Of course, they could have been way past us already, right? But they hadn't been Christians for very long. He writes these deep truths to them, expecting them to understand it. Why? Because he trusts the Spirit of God to teach it to them. He trusts the Holy Spirit that they would read it and they would meditate on it and they think on it to understand what he was saying to them. But he is so jealous for them, so passionate for them, because he saw them returning to a slavery that they had already been freed from. But even worse than returning to the slavery, they were abandoning their rightful inheritance as sons and daughters of God. And so just to get practical as we close, the theology is beautiful and powerful, but to get practical as we close, I was thinking about ways that in my own life I slip into a servant mentality and away from a son relationship with God. And as I said earlier, what it's coming down to is how we relate to God. This is the issue for us. We're not going to be circumcised. We're not going to be deceived by that. The need for something else in an outward expression like that to be saved. We're not going to be deceived by that. What is our potential error? It's to slip away from sonship. To forget that we are heirs and to forget that we've been adopted into this glorious family. Here's a few ways that I saw in my own heart and life. A servant acts out of a need to be needed. A son acts out of love for his father. A need to be seen. A need to be appreciated. So you don't need to clap for me. It's not necessary. I get my approval from God, not from men. And what motivates us is not the need for earthly human approval, but what motivates us is that we just, we love God, right? Now, when we use the term servant, I'm not saying that we don't serve God or serve others. It's the mentality of a servant. Are you following me? Maybe use the word slave would be much more poignant and powerful. Because really a servant in their day was in fact a slave. He was owned. A servant mentality has the need for approval and affirmation continually. A son lives secure before God knowing Christ's righteousness is his standing. How am I doing, Father? How am I doing? Am I doing okay? Did I do okay this week? Oh, I didn't do very well this week. I think I've said this many times in my times of preaching to you through the years. In my most desperate times before God, whether it was because of something I had done or something that was happening in my life to me, I find myself literally on my knees before God and I always, in my mouth, I'm saying, Father, I thank you that I'm your son. 
I'm not a pastor. I'm not a leader. I'm not first a husband. I'm not first a father of children or a grandfather to others. I am first and foremost in who I am. I am a son of God. That is where I gain my identity. That's what gives me security in life. This is where my affirmation in life comes from. If no one ever sees or appreciates, God does. If no one understands, the Lord does. He knows my heart. I tell Kath that all the time. The Lord knows my heart. He knows my heart. And it sets us free when we live with that kind of security. When disciplined, a servant feels unloved and reprimanded. A son benefits and learns from the discipline. I've said this before too, when I was a kid, being raised in a Catholic home, you're raised under law, always law. Certain kinds of behavior was different kinds of sin. Some were mortal sins. Mortal, that means they lead to death. And there, some of them were unforgivable. And I remember when things would happen, I'd bump my head, slam my finger in the car door. I thought God was mad at me. Because that's the kind of relationship I had with God. It's always ducking me. What did I do now? And I knew my heart. I knew that I was wicked. I knew that I was, I mean, I was a good kid, but I knew my own heart. We know our hearts. You're never quite comfortable Never quite secure in the love of you. Never, and as a result, because you haven't known the love of God, you can't love freely. <clears throat> we love Him because He first loved us. John wrote, and we love others because He first loved me. And I'm free to love. I don't have to withhold my love. And a son will view the world through the father's love. But a servant will try to appease everyone around him. You simply see things through different lenses when you're secure in your adoption, when you're secure as a son or a daughter of God. And I want to encourage those of you who are here today who struggle with your identity especially as it exists before God. It's, and it, it, it's, it's affected in your relationship with God. If you feel far from Him, it's because you are afraid, probably. If you can't draw near, it's because you're ashamed, maybe. And the Lord wants you to know that He loves you. If you are in faith in Christ, His righteousness is yours. And you have been loved by the Father as a son or a daughter of God, and you will be loved. And you will be secure in his hand until the day that Christ returns. And he finally puts to death this flesh. If we pass to the next life before then, it will end then for us as well. Thank God. Amen.
Isn't it a wonderful thought that one day we will no longer struggle with the sinful nature? And it is. It's such a glorious thought. This is part of our inheritance. Brothers and sisters, do not forget that you are heirs. And you have a great inheritance in Christ. And that you are joint heirs with Jesus Christ in some glorious future. A new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Amen? Amen.